0: your word tells us that the angelic hosts, when they're gathered around you, are crying out, holy, holy, holy. God, one holy won't do it. They repeat themselves again and again and again because your holiness is infinitely long and infinitely true. God, you are God. And this morning as we gather together, down in Galleon, Alabama, as people of God across our area, our country, our world, gather to worship Your name. Lord, we join our voices together with a worship service that is going on in heaven that will go on forever and ever. Lord, there is a worship and a praise going on even right now that we cannot see and we cannot hear, and yet it sounds extremely familiar to what we just sang. Worshipping who Jesus is. What Jesus has done. Worshipping Jesus as God, as King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, this morning as we consider Your Word This morning as we are gathered together to sit under and learn from and apply Your truth into our lives, our desperate hope and prayer is, Lord, that You will be here with us. That Your Spirit will guide us and speak to us. There are a million things right now that we can focus our attention on. There are a million things that can distract us from allowing Your Word to speak to us. We can be thinking about this afternoon or this evening or our kids or school coming up or a million other things. God, help us now by Your Spirit's power to hone in and focus on Your Word. We pray that Your Spirit will apply these truths into our hearts and lives so that we are not the same. Lord, so that we can be saved and sanctified and forgiven and transformed by the gospel of Jesus. God, help us to lift our eyes away from the temporary and to place them on the eternal, on You and who You are. We pray that our worship through hearing and responding to Your Word will echo into eternity and will transform us from the inside out. We ask these things In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. This morning we will be reading verses 22 through 26. This year we've been walking through the book of Exodus. We've seen God keep His promises to Abraham to deliver His people. He has shown up in Egypt and broken their bondage through the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea. God has sustained His people in the wilderness, and now God has entered into a covenant with His people who have been standing at the base of Mount Sinai as God audibly speaks to them what we call today the Ten Commandments. And each week this summer we've walked through these commandments looking not only at how we obey them with our actions, but also with our hearts. We've talked about how each of these commandments not only have horizontal dimensions, but also vertical dimensions. And we've pointed out that we can't keep the Ten Commandments. We needed Jesus to come do it for us so that we can be empowered by His Spirit to faithfully, albeit imperfectly, follow Him. And last week, we covered the last command and the people of Israel's response. A response of fear, of trembling, of awe. Upon seeing God come down in a cloud with flashes of lightning and booms of thunder, upon hearing the audible voice of God, the people of Israel cry out to Moses, make God stop, we can't handle to hear His holy voice anymore. You go speak to God for us and tell us what He commands. This morning we begin the part of Exodus known as the book of the law. The foundation of this covenant God made with Israel was the Ten Commandments, but God now will give more specific laws about how they are to live as God's people. Honestly, if you read through these chapters, Exodus 20 through 23, at first glance, many of these laws seem to have little relevance to our lives. They talk about altars and Slaves and sacrifices and dangerous animals and lost property and social justice and sorcery and religious festivals, etc., etc. In fact, this is the part of Exodus, much like the law book of Leviticus, that we're prone to skip or speed read, not knowing how this applies to us in any practical way. But what does the Apostle Paul say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17? He says all Scripture, in particular he's talking about all the Old Testament, is breathed out by God and profitable for what? For teaching, correction, and for training in righteousness so that we can be complete, so that we can be equipped for every good work. What does Jesus tell the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24? He says all of the law, all of the prophets, and all of the writings point to Him. So if King Jesus and His special messengers, the apostles, claim that all the Old Testament is inspired for God and is profitable to make us holy and points us towards Jesus, then it's bad form to skip stuff because it's God's Word. Instead of skipping or speed reading these laws that seem to be irrelevant, we should instead approach them and ask the question, what do these laws reveal to us about who God is, about His character? Because God is unchanging and God is God. As New Covenant Christians, the specific Laws that we read about here, the specific applications of these laws, might not apply to us today. But the principles found within and underneath them do apply to us because they are rooted in God's unchanging and holy character. So this morning we begin this book of the law by discussing altars, atonement, and the right worship of God. Let's read Exodus 20. Verses 22 through 26 together. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold, an altar of earth, You shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tools on it, you will profane it. You shall not go up by steps. To my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Like I said, seemingly irrelevant to your practical life. You might have come to church this morning and said, Tomorrow's a big day, new week, new work week, maybe you're about to start school. Big week, about to start whatever grade you're going into. God, speak to me today. Give me something. And then you show up and the preacher reads a passage about burnt offerings and not stepping up on the altar to expose your nakedness. And you think, come on now, give me something more practical. My hope this morning is to show you how the principles found within these commands do apply to us in extremely practical ways today. So I want to point out four truths to Us this morning from this text. The first is this. We see in this passage that Moses is God's mouthpiece and Moses is Israel's mediator. Moses is God's mouthpiece and Israel's mediator. Israel needs a mediator to stand between them and the holy God. As sinners, they cannot bear to be too close to Him. They cannot bear to hear His audible voice. That's why they cried out in our text last week for Moses to go and talk to God for them. So Moses steps into this role. And Moses will soon be led by God to institute the tribe of Levi to be the priests of Israel. This tribe will offer sacrifices to God. They will care for the altar and the tabernacle where God's presence dwells. They will serve long term as mediators and priests from between God and Israel. But in the meantime, God has more to say to Israel than just the Ten Commandments. He wants to give them more specific rules about how to live as God's people. So He speaks to Moses... And Moses records what God says and then passes them on to and teaches Israel. So because of this special role that's given to Moses, Moses is able to rightly say, Thus saith the Lord. And then what what he says after that is actually the words of God. God is directly giving him words to speak. The biblical position or title for this kind of role in the Old Testament is a prophet. And in Deuteronomy, God tells Moses to tell Israel that there are certain standards for Israel to know if someone who is claiming to be a prophet actually is speaking the Word of God. In short, is what they're saying matching up with the rest of God's Word and is what they're saying is going to happen actually happening? If it's not, then they're not a prophet, they're a false prophet prophet. These prophets all throughout the Old Testament would bring to light the message that God wishes to communicate to His people. Oftentimes, it's a message and a call for Israel to repent of their sin and to keep the covenant that they've, they've come into with God. So prophets all throughout the Old Testament, starting with Moses, are a gift God gives to Israel. But even oftentimes their words sting. In fact, part of God's judgment on Israel for breaking this covenant, not keeping the Ten Commandments, not keeping this agreement they made with God, is that as the Old Testament ends, God stops raising up new prophets. There is no longer any word from the Lord because Israel has refused to listen to the word of the Lord for so long. That's why after 400 years when John the Baptist appears in the wilderness and begins to call people to repentance, the crowds flock out to him. There has been a famine of words from the Lord. So when they hear that a prophet has arisen, they go out in droves. John the Baptist obviously prepares the way for Jesus, who is God the flesh and speaks God's Word as the ultimate prophet. And then Jesus, after His life, death, and resurrection, does what? He empowers and calls His followers, in particular the apostles, to speak God's Word to His people. These apostles in the New Testament possess the same kind of authority that the prophets in the Old Testament Had. They were legitimately able to say, Thus says the Lord. That's why we consider what they spoke and, in particular, what they wrote to be a part of Holy Scripture, what we call today the New Testament. Now, the New Testament speaks about a gift, a spiritual gift of prophecy, but that's different than Old Testament prophecy. Prophecy in the New Testament is a spontaneous word that the Lord gives to His people or to someone to build up and to speak truth to the church. But New Testament prophecy had to be tested by the leaders of the church. New Testament prophecy, had to, they had to make sure that it didn't contradict with God's Word. New Testament prophecy was not considered to be Scripture. This would happen a lot in the early church especially before the canon of Scripture was closed and the apostles' inspired writings were collected and distributed to God's people. You might ask, why a lesson about prophets? Well, to start our verse here, the Lord begins to speak to Moses. He's no longer speaking to Israel. And if Israel is to hear God's word, they're dependent upon this mediator, this prophet Moses. And this office is important all throughout the Old and New Testaments, the early church, and even today. And the important point that's relevant to us today when we consider this reality is this. The authority of a prophet or an apostle or a preacher of God's Word lies not in the individual but in God whether in the Old Covenant, the early church, or today, if someone claims to speak on behalf of God, the message they proclaim must accord with God's Word and be built upon His Word. So if somebody says, the Lord told me this, the Lord laid this on my heart, and then what proceeds from their mouth is something that goes against God's Word, the Lord didn't do that. It's very important for us to have a category of discernment because there are many today who will claim to speak on behalf of God whose message is not built upon and rooted in the inspired Scriptures. People who claim to speak for God when their message is not rooted in His Word or even contradicts His Word should not be listened to. God has gifted many with many abilities. There are many today who are great storytellers, who can capture an audience with a moving narrative. There are many who know how to use humor effectively. Many who can communicate very clearly. But friends, all of those things, as valuable as they are, if they are happening without God's truth, then we cannot call it biblical truth. Preaching. So don't follow a man. Don't follow a style. Don't follow their ministry. Follow God's Word. Test everything by God's Word. If I say something that contradicts God's Word, you had better come talk to me about it. Don't listen to those who are not building their message upon the truth of God. God's Word. It is God's Word that will direct our lives. It is God's Word that can change our hearts. It is God's Word that can save a soul. It is God's Word that can mature a saint. It is God's Word that must be the foundation of all that we believe and how we live. So just because someone looks like a preacher and sounds like a preacher does not mean that they are truly a mouthpiece of God. In fact, many today, just turn on the radio or TV pose as preachers who regularly ignore biblical truth, who take it out of context, who twist it for their own purposes. Many today pose as preachers who are really self-help gurus, posing as preachers who are really self-esteem boosters, ticklers of ears, unwilling to declare God's Word and what it actually says because it might hurt their poll numbers, their platform, their influence, and their lifestyle. Even if we don't talk about all those people out there, many even in a rural context, whose name will never be written on the pages of human history, will regularly choose to water down their message, always keeping it simple, never dealing with touchy biblical truths because they are more committed to keeping people comfortable when in reality what they are doing is unintentionally keeping God's people on the spiritual bottle instead of helping them grow up into maturity. Friends, in our day that is filled with false gospels and watered down messages that are feeding false Truths or half-truths. We must search for the truth. And we must be those who are willing to proclaim it no matter the cost. We must be those who test what we hear with Scripture. Who are discerning. Who can spot a counterfeit from a mile away because we know the original. We have God's Word. The prophets and the apostles have spoken. God's Word must be our life. And Moses will be the first of these prophets in the Bible. Moses will receive God's Word and pass it on to the people of Israel. And I want you to notice as we walk through these verses where God starts in the book of the law. That leads us to our second truth. God expects and God directs Israel's worship. He expects and He directs Israel's worship. God immediately from the get-go tells Moses what not to worship, and He tells him how to rightly worship Him. God expects that His people are going to worship Him. Why? Because He's God. Because He is God. God doesn't demand that His people worship Him because He is a sinfully selfish, egotistical being. No, He demands and expects that His people worship Him because He actually is God. He is the greatest of all Beings, He really is supreme. He is perfectly holy and righteous all together. If you or I were to demand other people to worship us, it would be sinful and selfish and egotistical because we are created and imperfect beings. We are not rightly worthy of any worship, but God is not like us. God is actually God. God is distinct and He is pure, He is transcendent, He is holy, He is righteous and just, He is gracious and merciful, He is unchanging and loving, He is God. He is the highest and the greatest and the most supreme. So it is not selfish, it is not egotistical for Him to demand our worship. Instead, it is righteous and good for Him to demand our worship because He is the only one that is truly worth any worship. God expects His people to worship Him. That's how He starts this book of the law. But He doesn't just expect it, He also directs their worship. He tells them what not to do and what to do. Now why? To be honest, because if God would have left it up to us, we would have figured out a way to screw it up. The Almighty God is the standard of all things and He alone knows how He is to be worshipped. He alone can set the parameters on how He will be worshipped. As fallen sinners, our tendency is to try to worship God in ways that actually can belittle Him and misrepresent Him. That's why God started the Ten Commandments with the first three. Don't make any other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. Don't take my name in vain. Why did He start there? Because as fallen sinners, we are prone to worship what God has made the creation instead of God the Creator. As fallen sinners, we are prone to misrepresent God with images that can never fully encompass His character and His greatness. Because as fallen sinners, we are prone to misrepresent who God is and His attributes and His glory with the way that we speak and sing about Him. Don't have any other gods. Don't make graven images and idols to worship. Don't take my name in vain. God knows from the get-go that we cannot be trusted to worship God the right way because it is far above our pay grade. So God begins the book of the law like He begins the Ten Commandments by expecting His people to worship Him and by directing His people how to and not to worship Him. He tells them specifically what is required of them. And our last two points this morning have to do with what this God-directed biblical worship requires. The first thing that this biblical worship requires is distinction from the world. Biblical worship requires distinction from the world. Israel is God's covenant-chosen, special people. God is planning to use Israel to reach the pagan nations around them. But in order to reach the nations around them, Israel must be different, distinct from the nations around them. This begins in the way that they worship. The nations all around Israel in the ancient Near East worshipped idols. They would regularly make images of gold and silver. And they would declare that these were their gods. They would use these expensive and valuable metals to coat their false gods made of wood. And they would do this in order to send the message to worshippers and onlookers that these are extremely valuable. These ancient Near Eastern people would make sacrifices to these false gods on altars. And the altars that they made these sacrifices on were elaborately decorated. They were altars that would have been put on display the amazing craftsmanship of those who had built them. But here's the problem. The expensive idols that were impressive to the eye were not really gods. They were pretend... It didn't matter how beautiful they were. It didn't matter how beautifully constructed the idols or the altars were. They weren't real, but real people were really devoting their lives to worshiping a piece of wood that was overlaid with gold and silver. The idols and the altars were appealing to the eye so that a worshiper could come to see These people worship and they could show up and see the idol that was beautifully constructed, the altar with its beautiful craftsmanship, and be impressed and think, you know, this must be the real deal. Look at how nice everything is. Look at how much time was put into these things. I think I'm going to worship with these people. But the reality is, even though things looked nice, No true worship was happening because the true God was not being worshipped. And even if they were worshipping the true God, the people that would come would be so focused on the beauty of the worship props that they couldn't rightly focus on God. But what's the point of worshipping God? Is the point of worshipping God not to reflect on and be overwhelmed by the glory and the goodness of God instead of being distracted by man's ability? Is the point of worshiping God not to be enthralled with God so much that we can in no way be distracted with any of the temporary trinkets that are involved in the worship? That's the point of worship. If you showed up? to worship God, and we were singing, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, or you're sitting under God's Word and all you can think about is the pulpit or the beauty of the windows or the cross or whatever it might be, then you're missing it. It's not about what you can see with your eyes. It's about reflecting on who God is. And that's the point that God is trying to make in these commands. God demands that Israel will worship Him in a way that is different from the pagan nations around them. They were not to have false gods and idols because why? There's only one true God. They're not to build an elaborate altar made of hewn stones because to wield their tools on the stones would profane it. Instead, they were to make an altar of earth that might not be impressive to the eyes, but that also in no way would distract anyone's attention from being on God. They were to make an altar of the earth, something that God had made to display and to remember that God is the true creator and God is the most excellent craftsman. So he says, this is how you are not to worship me. Don't make idols. Don't put gold and silver and pretend things are God. Don't don't make elaborate altars of hewn stone. And said, make one of the earth. And then he adds these strange verses... Don't put any steps on the altar. Why? So your nakedness will not be exposed. (laughs) What in the world? This actually also has to do with God wanting Israel and their worship to be distinct from the nations. In the ancient Near East, pagan worship... Would not just involve singing praises and offering sacrifices. Pagan worship in the ancient Near East would oftentimes involve immodesty and nakedness. It would also oftentimes involve sexual immorality and promiscuity. Why? Because in the ancient Near East, these peoples believed that the gods they were worshipping controlled the rain, which affected the harvest, which affected their livelihood. So as they were offering sacrifices to God, they were pleading with God to send rain to help them to live. So the mindset of these people in the ancient Near East, but also even into the first century when the New Testament is going on, the reason that, that this... Sexual promiscuity and immorality was going on in their worship service. The mindset was, you know what? If we are getting busy down here worshiping God, maybe God will get busy in heaven and send us some rain. That was the idea going on, which obviously is backwards thinking, and yet this is what's going on. And God wants His people's worship to be different and distinct because you can't reach the nations if your worship looks just like their worship. So God doesn't just say, you know what, listen, no promiscuity, no sexual immorality in worship, that's not what I'm after. Instead, He goes so far as to say, I want you to be so modestly dressed, so covered up as you worship Me that nothing is even close to being exposed near the altar where my worship will take place. So no steps are allowed. Interestingly, I read in a commentary this week, apparently back then folks didn't have a category for undergarments in the same way that we did. And they also weren't running around wearing khakis and blue jeans. They were wearing robes and other clothing of the sort. So if everybody's running around in dresses and robes and nobody's got fruit of the looms underneath, what can steps lead to? Exposure. God wants his people to be so distinct from the nations that they're even guarding against the possibility of any sort of exposure. So the altar is constructed in a way to prevent this. You might think we talk about idols and altars and undergarments and all that weird stuff. How in the world does Does any of this relate to me? This is interesting, but how does that apply to me and my worship of God today? Well, this is how. The principle underneath these commands is simple and it still applies today. God wants His people's worship to be different than the world. Different from the worship of the world so that we should not focus on how our worship looks or how our worship sounds. We should not try to draw attention to ourselves and our talents in our worship. Instead, God wants His people's worship to not only focus on outward form or garnering man's approval, but He wants His people's worship to be real, to be genuine, to be directed to Him, not to have ulterior motives. Is it not possible today to have a nice building with nicely dressed folks, the most up-to-date sound system and beautifully woven choir robes, and yet have worship that does not honor God because no one is actually focused on God? It's possible in our day to gather for worship with the intent not to bring honor to and be enthralled by the glory of God, but instead to impress other people with the show that we will put on instead of having hearts that are overwhelmed by the greatness and the grace of God. Friends, the glory is God's. If we seek to do something for God in our lives, but then we feel the need to tell everyone else about it, what are we doing? We're trying to steal glory and distract people from focusing on what God enabled us to do so they can look at us and applaud us and think that we're great. If we're more focused on how our worship looks or sounds, then that is genuine and God-focused, then what are we doing? We're trying to steal glory from God and get pats on the back of affirmation from others. Friends, if you can be impressed by a building full of people who have rocking, worshipful music, but where the Word of God is not faithfully preached and lived out, then you are focused on the form and not the substance, and you would have loved the worship of the Canaanites. If you leave worship Here or anywhere else, and what you walk away with is an amazement at a man or a woman who has preached or who is saying well instead of being blown away at the goodness and the glory and the grace of God, then what has been done in that worship service has been done in vain. It's not about us, it's about Him. To God be the glory, not to the preacher be the glory, or to the singer be the glory, or to the choir be the glory, or to the teacher be the glory. It's not about you. It's not about me, it's about God. It always has been. That principle applies. Old covenant and new covenant. God is after a faithfulness among His people that is different from the world. God would prefer a simple, sincere Worship that is genuinely focused on Him and His glory than an elaborate show that appeals to the masses and actually distracts our gaze from Him. God would prefer a group of believers gathering together in a shanty in Africa to praise Him with only their voices, their hands, and a small portion of the Bible if the praise within that shanty is real. He would prefer that over a gathering in a nice building with nicely dressed people and nice sounding music where no one's heart is truly beating for and focused on the glory of God. There should be something different and heavenly and distinct about the worship of God's people. That's the point God's trying to make with these seemingly strange directives about this temporary altar and constructing it with no steps. Biblical worship requires that we be distinct from the world. But it requires one other thing. Our last truth this morning found in our verses. Biblical worship requires sacrifice. Biblical worship requires sacrifice. All this talk about the altar. What's the purpose of the altar? It's for animal sacrifices to be made. Why are those necessary? Because Israel will sin against God. In fact, the fact that God gives this command about what the altar needs to look like right after giving the Ten Commandments shows us that God knew from the get-go of the Sinai Covenant, Israel would not be able to keep it. That was one of the main reasons God gave the Ten Commandments, and the law to Israel to point out to them their inability to be right with God based upon good works and obedience so that they would be prepared when He decided in the fullness of time to send His Son, Jesus, and to provide the grace needed to truly be reconciled to God. God knew they were going to break it. That's why the first command is, here's an altar for when you break this command. Here's the means by which you can still dwell in My presence. The animal's blood had to be shed as a substitute for the Israelite sinner's blood because God is holy and mankind is sinful. God must do what is right. He cannot just overlook and ignore sin. Instead, He has to stand against it. He has to do what is right. He has to punish it as a just and righteous God. And in order for God's judgment and His wrath to be appeased and turned away, atonements had to be made. This has always been the case in the Old Testament. From Genesis 3 onward, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and hid from God in their shame, what did God do? He covered them with what? The skins of animals. Animals who had been sacrificed. Animals whose blood had been shed in the place of Adam and Eve in order to cover their shame. When God commanded Abram to take his son Isaac, his only son, up to the top of Mount Moriah and to slaughter him as a sacrifice, what is it that prevented that from having to happen? There was a ram caught in the thicket, a ram that was sacrificed in Isaac's place as Isaac's substitute. When Israel is in bondage to Egypt and God has promised to set them free and God has promised to judge His enemies, the Egyptians, for their sin, what makes the difference between how God responds to the people of Israel and the people of Egypt? Well, Israel had slain the Passover lamb and had put the blood on the... Doorpost of their homes and was hiding under the blood so that when God passed over them, when He came near to them, He would see that a sacrifice had already been offered in their place. He could pass over them and not give them what they deserve while the Egyptians who were not hiding under the blood were destroyed, the firstborn sons. And here Israel is commanded that an altar will be made and it will be at the center of their worship. Leviticus, one of the most neglected books in our Bible, because of its seeming strangeness as we read through it, lays out many specific details about the sacrifice God commands His people to make, but only two of them are mentioned here in Exodus 20, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. The burnt offering involved the entire sacrifice being burned on the altar... It was a sacrifice of an atonement. It was to pay for sin. Before someone could draw near to a holy God, something had to be done about their sin. And this burnt offering was the provision God had given to His people Israel. The smoke of the offering would rise up to heaven where God would recognize that a sacrifice had been made for sin. In order to make this offering, the worshiper would come with their sacrificial animal. They would lay their hands on the head of the animal, symbolically identifying with it, and then they would slaughter the animal by slitting its throat. The blood would be collected and sprinkled against the side of the altar, and then the entire animal would be placed on the altar by the priest and burned completely with the smoke rising vertically to the Lord. The other sacrifice mentioned here is the fellowship offering or the peace offering. This offering had a different emphasis. This offering showed what kind of relationship God now had with His people once atonement for sin had been made. Sometimes these peace offerings were offered to God to thank Him for some sort of special blessing or some sort of special answer to prayer. Sometimes it was offered merely as a way to show gratitude and glory to God. But what this offering, the peace offering, did is it would remind the people of God that they were no longer separated from God, but instead now had fellowship and peace with Him because atonement for their sin had been made. This offering was different. It wasn't totally consumed by fire. Instead, only the fat, the choicest part of the animal, was burned and offered to God. The rest was cooked until tender and eaten by the worshippers, to celebrate the grace of God, of being in fellowship with Him. Now at this point, all this talk about bloodshed, animal sacrifices, altars, turning away the judgment of a holy God can begin to sound somewhat strange to modern ears, right? If I had planned this morning for one of our deacons at this point to bring out a lamb, and I pulled out a machete, so let me show you what what this looked like. Right, right here on the front, we'd probably say, "I'm going to go visit another church next week." All this talk about bloodshed and sacrifices and altars and atonement and a God who is holy and has to punish sin, it sounds like something that ancient peoples believed in. But we're prone today to think with all of our technology and modern advances and intelligence and enlightened minds that some of these ideas and practices should be left behind. We've advanced beyond this primitive thinking. In fact, many so-called churches and so-called preachers believe just that today. They love to talk about and sing about God, His love for you, His plan for your life. They'll use the Bible as a casebook to pull verses out, to give you marriage advice or parenting principles or workplace ideas to live for Him. They might emphasize through their preaching and teaching that you're valuable, you're made in God's image, He cares about you, you've got to have faith, you've got to believe, He's never going to leave you, you've got to make a difference for Him. All of those things that are not in and of themselves bad. They will even talk about Jesus, about His life, His miracles, His mercy, His teaching but so often they will disconnect all of that talk about God and us and our lives and Jesus from this uncomfortable chatter about bloodshed and sacrifice. Why? Because when your main focus is to stay relevant and not scare people off, with the strangeness of your message, then it's easy to conveniently avoid talking about how God's holiness and my sin demands a blood sacrifice. I have heard sermon after sermon after sermon in my life, and even today, that give you life principles that talk about Jesus as a great teacher. He was that. Jesus' miracles, He can do that miracle for you today. The masses love principles. The masses love the idea that God is for you, not against you. But so often when I hear these sermons, they never get to the point that makes a Christian message distinctly Christian, which is that Jesus Christ not only taught good messages and showed mercy to the undeserving, but the purpose of His coming, the climax of His life was not a miracle He performed or a sermon He preached or a practical life lesson that He gave, but the climax of His life, the purpose of His life, the reason He stepped off the throne was to become the blood sacrifice we need to atone for our sins and turn away the wrath of a holy God once for all. That's the foundation of Christianity. And so often today, it's not proclaimed, it's not taught, it's not emphasized, it's not thought about but if we are truly to preach Christ and be a people of the book and to worship God in the right way, then the strangeness of that idea must blow our minds and be the focus of our attention constantly. Our salvation is only possible And our true purpose will only be fulfilled by us believing in a blood sacrifice. The sacrifice Jesus made on the cross by bearing a holy God's judgment, by atoning for our sin once for all, by creating a lasting peace and a lasting fellowship between God and His sinful people through the finished work of His Son. That is what all of these sacrifices, that is what the altar, that is what all the bloodshed has always been pointing forward to. That is the only Way to be saved, and we must never get so sophisticated, so modern, or so enlightened that we move beyond that old, old story. Because, friends, it is true, nothing but the blood of Jesus can save. Friends, we worship God because He is God, He is worthy. He commands our worship. The worship that we bring to Him must be directed to Him. And it must be directed by Him and His Word, or else it is not true worship. Our churches must not look like the world around us. Our individual lives as professing believers who've been transformed by the Gospel must not look like the world around us. Our churches, our worship, how we do things, why we do things, must not look like the world around us. Our our message must not sound like the messages that the world is proclaiming today because our message of the gospel is otherworldly. Friends, the, the salvation that we believe in only comes through a gruesome but glorious, a bloody but beautiful, a scandalous sacrifice of the Son of God. He died for me, and He died for you. That is love. That is grace. That is the gospel. But in order for that good news to become good news for you and I, we must repent of our sins and believe in the finished work of Christ and surrender our lives to Him as Lord. That is the only way to be saved. And if you're here this morning and you haven't made that decision, you haven't surrendered your life to Christ as your Savior and King, then my prayer for you is that you will not wait. You will not tarry any longer. You won't wait to figure out your life and get it together to learn enough about the Bible to where you feel worthy of that. You'll never be worthy and you'll never get good enough. You must lean on and trust in Him. It's the only way to be saved. If you're here this morning and you know the Lord and you've been saved by Jesus, then my prayer for you is that you will know as you read this passage, as you read your Bibles, you seek to live for the Lord, that there is no longer any need for an altar. There is no longer a sacrifice to be made. There is no longer any need for bloodshed or atonement because Jesus paid it all and it is finished and His work was enough. It was sufficient. We must rest in that reality. The only sacrifice for the believer that is left is that we become living sacrifices ourselves, as Paul says in Romans 12:1 through 3 The only sacrifice left is that we wholeheartedly commit our lives to the Lord who has given His life for us. So whatever your need is this morning, whether it's repentance and faith and salvation, whether it's forgiveness whether it's God's sustaining grace to hold you in the midst of the trial that you're going through, whatever your need, whether it's sanctification, God's transforming grace and the Holy Spirit to help you say no to sin and be different from the world, whatever it is my prayer is, is that you will not navel gaze at yourself and trust in yourself to fix your problems, but that your eyes will lift and will gaze at the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the reason that altars are not needed. He is the reason atonement has been provided. He is the reason that true and pleasing worship is even possible. So let us look to Him this morning. Let us turn our gaze to Him. And respond to Him as His Spirit leads us. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You this morning for Your grace and mercy. We thank You this morning that You are a good and gracious King. God, that You never call Your people to do something that You have not first done for us. God, we thank You that in Your grace You not only give us good laws to obey, but that You empower us by the finished work of Your Son and by the power of the Spirit to to live out those laws. We thank You that atonement has been made. We thank You that we don't have to go again and again and again to an altar to offer sacrifices that can never truly atone for sin because Jesus has come and offered His life as the true sacrifice, the true offering, the true Passover lamb for us. God, we pray that we will not grow weary of hearing that old, old story, that we'll never become too sophisticated to rest in the finished work of Christ, even the shed blood of Christ as our only hope. Lord, if there are any here this morning who don't know You, I pray that they will run to the cross, that they will trust in You, that they will repent of their sin and surrender to You. God, if there are any here this morning who need Your sustaining and transforming grace, who need to repent of sin, I pray that Your Spirit will guide them. Lord, as we respond, as we close this morning, we pray that You will move in our hearts. Help us not just to hear another sermon and not respond. Help us to do business with You even now. We ask all these things in the finished work of Christ and in His glorious name. Amen. Will you stand together with us as we close? Respond as the Lord leads you this morning.
1: Come to the end of yourself Do you thirst for a drink from the well Jesus is called Jesus Christ.